Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds, where we take movies that maybe are a little forgotten, a little unknown, and maybe just need a little more love out there, and I try to highlight them and bring them to more of a mainstream audience. As always, my name is Mario Lanza, and our movie today is a very special one to me. This is a movie that I grew up with, I saw many, many times growing up. It's one of those movies that was very prominent in the 80s and everyone knew about it and then all of a sudden it just kind of got forgotten over time to the point that you never ever hear about it today and that movie of course is 1980s masterpiece teen movie masterpiece my bodyguard and i'd like to introduce my guest who's going to be delving into this movie with me today uh let's see he is an attorney he is a big movie fan he has been really excited to come on and talk about uh one of these movies with me he gave me a whole list of ones he wanted to talk about we kind of narrowed it down and we finally got one my bodyguard that we both know and love so i'd like to introduce my guest mr jay framson hi hey jay welcome and thank you for joining me on staff picks yeah well thanks 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 for asking me <laughs> Okay, for people who may not know what this movie is, this is going to be a little different than some of the other movies I've uh, done so far. I've done a lot of comedies. I've done a lot of suspense horror movies. This is going to be the first straight drama movie. And it's, uh, it's, it's a little different talking about a drama because I'm not pointing out the best gags, the best bits. We're just talking about a movie, but uh, like a movie that's just straight dramatic and, and like has a lot of heart and a lot of emotion to it. And Jay... I'm just curious, you watched this movie in the last couple of days, right, to uh, refresh yourself for this podcast? Yeah, well, yeah, about in, in the last week. Okay. What did you think? What was your overall impression of My Bodyguard watching it now 38 years after it first came out? Well, my overall impression was that uh, I, um, I was pretty surprised at uh, how well it seems to hold up. And, I mean, I didn't really remember the movie that well because I – the last time I saw it was about 38 years ago when it first came out. And uh, I remembered really liking the movie a lot. And I've always had a, a really good feeling about it over the years as, as a really great movie. But I didn't really remember it that well. And and watching it again, it um, I, really, I really enjoyed it. And it was fun seeing some of these actors who were kind of appearing for the first time it was i didn't remember obviously at the time we wouldn't have known who they are but uh you know like jennifer beals um <laughs> and it was fun seeing martin mull again i had forgot i had completely forgotten that martin mull was in this movie <laughs> and it's so great uh seeing him again in his prime um so it was it was really fun i really enjoyed watching it again one thing that jumps out to me when i watch this movie and again i've seen many my bodyguard many times probably 50, 60, 70 times in my lifetime. I rented it all the time at video stores when I was a kid. One thing that always strikes me when I watch it is it takes me back to being about eight years old every single time. Like I watch it, I'm like, I'm Clifford. I'm, I'm this little kid getting ready to go to a big school and the bullies are going to torment me. And it's like, it absolutely transports me to a place in time in my life. Do you, do you find that happens to you as well? Not with this movie so much. Uh, I saw this movie, I first saw it, I had just graduated from college when I saw it, mm -hmm. and I wasn't—I haven't watched it as many times over the years as you have, and I didn't see it at the time that I saw it because it was a movie about a kid. I just was seeing movies that were getting good reviews. I was just going to see movies, mm -hmm. so it didn't resonate with me as much in that way, other than as a really good movie. Yeah, I, but although. 
I mean, watching it now, I mean, there are certain things about it that I can definitely identify with. I mean, I, I had experiences. I moved with my family to a new town when I was like uh, 10. We moved from one state to another. So I had that experience of being uh, coming to a new school and not knowing anybody. And I was also kind of a sissy when I was a kid, so I got made fun of and got beat up on a lot anyway. Mm-hmm. So moving to a new town and not knowing anybody, I definitely can identify with that. Yeah, and that's one of the things that really jumps out of this movie is that it really, if you're a certain type of kid who grew up and you weren't the popular kid, you weren't the the big jock, you weren't like the big man on campus, like almost anybody who's been through public schools or high school and like that has been picked on, tormented, bullied. So like, even though you and I went through this at different times, like you saw this movie coming out of college, so the movie might not have resonated with you as much. I saw it when I was like eight, and I'm thinking high school is the scariest place on the face of the earth, according to this movie and other movies. Like, you can, like anybody can take something from this movie because high school is such a, uh, I would just say a universally hellish place for most people. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, okay, so let's let's summarize this movie a little bit for people who haven't seen it. Because again, I feel so strongly about this movie and so passionate about it, and it's funny because it's still I still see it show up from time to time on like Entertainment Weekly when they do like the top 50 high school movies ever made and whenever they ever they do best teen movies. This movie will generally still show up maybe in the 30s or 40s, but it never gets on the top like in the top 10, which I would always put it in the top 10 because this movie I think is so fantastic. But the thing that jumps out about this movie is that most of the time when you think a teen movie, you think it's going to be a comedy or a racy comedy or a sex comedy. And like this movie ain't funny at all. This is played 100% completely straight where, I mean, a kid's getting bullied at school and it's it's terrorizing. He's 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 getting like absolutely brutalized by these bullies and they're going to murder him at some point. And it's like it's not played for laughs at all. Although they definitely I mean, it does provide a pretty comic backdrop with his family life. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the things I want to say, that there's basically two movies going on here at once. It makes it a little bit uh, confusing at times, the tone. Yeah, there's absolutely a comic side of the movie happening at home, but everything at school is completely straight. And it's, it's... Let's just summarize this a little for people who don't know. Um, again, for starters, this movie is called My Bodyguard. It came out in 1980. Not to be confused with The Bodyguard starring Whitney Houston, which I know will be a common mistake. <laughs> there is no Whitney Houston, no Kevin Costner in this one. Right. Okay, let's see. So it's about a kid named Clifford Peach who uh, moves to Chicago. He's uh, kind of li- lived a privileged life. He went to some academy, some private school. His father owns a hotel. So he basically lives in the hotel. He's got a kind of a, an odd life. It's uh, peripatetic. He's moving around a lot. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He's just he's a smart kid. He's a nerdy kid, and he comes from some money, and that is not the thing that you want to be known as when you go into the terror of the Chicago public schools in the early 80s. And I've have you heard other things about Chicago public schools? Now, I've heard that this movie even kind of undersells how how terrible they were in the early 80s, just how horrifying it would have been to walk into those halls in, like, 1980. I have not. I, I don't know anything about schools or any really any, anything much about Chicago. Mm-hmm. So, but but I can imagine, I mean, I, I know generally, I mean, growing up in a city like Chicago, that it can be kind of gritty, although it seems like he lives in a relatively better part of town. Yeah, compared to the other characters in the movie, Clifford is much better off than most of them. Now, did you go to public school or were you a private school kid? I, in, uh, well, in high school, I went to a private school. I went to a very small Jewish school in Providence, Rhode Island, and there were only 17 people in my class. So I didn't have a typical experience in high school at all. 
in junior high school, I, I was in public school in junior high school, and that was, you know, school with thousands of kids. Now, again, you, you said you were bullied in, like, junior high. Did you, like, live your life in terror like a lot of kids do going through school in the, and during that era, during those years? I, yeah, I did. I mean, it was, I was, it was kind of schizophrenic because on the one hand, I was kind of terror. There were certain kids who kind of terrorized me. And on the other hand, I was kind of like, um, I was this kid that excelled at a lot of things. So I was in, I was in the school play and I was in the school band and I was, I was on the school newspaper. And, um, so I was doing all these things, but those things didn't endear me to some of the, elements in the school yeah. who were ones who were picking on me. So I, I um but yeah, I mean there were there were definitely I definitely hated going to school because because I just I had a couple of friends, but overall I was there there was yeah, I was kind of like tormented by by some of these kids in the school. Yeah. And it's funny how universal that is, because you're a good, you know, 10, 15 years older than me, and it was like getting bullied in school. And really, that's half of what, you know, like public education is in America growing up as a kid is learning how not to get the crap kicked out of you in school, especially if you're a boy. Now, I don't I'm sure it's different for girls. I'm sure they have bullying as well. I'm not a girl. I don't know. But as a boy, like that's like half of your life during that age in the junior high and the high school years, figuring out who the bullies are and figuring out how not to get noticed by them. <laughs> And that was right. a big that was a big part of my life too. And I was just my strategy was always just lay low, make sure I draw no attention to myself ever, because there's always the one kid in the school, as we see in this movie. The Matt Dillon plays just a fantastic villain who, like, he's not they're not playing him for laughs. He is going to he's going to beat the crap out of Clifford at some point, and it's not going to be funny. It's going to be behind the lockers when the teachers aren't there, and it's a very real threat. And again, this is just something I think is so universal for people your age, people my age, people 10 years younger than me, 20 years younger than me, people in school now, that it's just, that's just such a major part of growing up for a boy. It's like, find out real quick who the bullies are and how to how best to avoid them. Yeah, and I think the movie, one other thing that it really shows well is how you can't rely on the teachers or the the administration or the the vice principal or whoever to to save you. You got to make it. You got to navigate all this on your own. Mm -hmm. you, you can't rely on the people in the school to help you because they're just going to get you in more trouble. Yeah, and in the, in the defense, again, the teachers aren't played as uncaring in this movie. They think they are helping. They think they you know are watching out for the kids, but. A bully's going to get you. That's the thing. If a bully wants after you, they're going to find you and corner you at some point, and the teachers can't be there at, in, at all times. So, And that's just a real terror that Clifford lives with in this movie, and we're going to get into the storyline here a little more about that. But, yeah. So uh, so anyway, so Clifford, yeah, the new kid in school. He's showing up in Chicago. He uh, He's played by an actor named uh, Chris Makepeace, one of my all-time favorite actors. And I'm just going to go on a little aside here. Were, are you familiar with Chris Makepeace other than from My Bodyguard? No, and I I know that you uh, mentioned online that uh, that you love him from Meatballs, which yes. I saw Meatballs. Okay, yeah, Meatballs is another movie we're going to talk about here on Staff Picks down the road, and it's just such a it's uh, Meatballs is such a sweet movie disguised as a sex comedy, and again Chris Makepeace just stars in that movie. He's I think it was his first movie, 
And he's got so much heart, and he's got these big soulful eyes, and you believe everything he says. And then he made Meatballs, and then he did this movie, My Bodyguard, and then he did some other stuff. And then he really just kind of dropped out of acting and disappeared in the 80s. But he's one of these guys I always remember, like, the king of the teen movies. Like, I always think 70s teen star, late 70s teen star. You put Chris Makepeace in something, and you're going to believe it. Like, do you find yourself really rooting for Clifford in this movie? Oh, yeah. I mean, he definitely he definitely has you wrapped around your around his finger he yeah totally and the thing with chris makepeace is that a lot of people don't know much about him because he again he just disappeared he showed up they plucked him out of nowhere for meatballs he was starting like four movies then he disappeared but like he was just this, this unknown canadian kid they just pulled out of nowhere and what's what's fascinating about this movie in particular my bodyguard is that he is playing a character who is basically his own age and that's something you don't see in a lot of teen movies usually you have a 20 25 year old playing a teen in this movie, I think Chris Makepeace was literally 16 years old playing a 16-year-old. And it's one of the things, the uh, realism and the grittiness of this movie is that, I don't know if you knew this, Jay, but every single teen actor in this movie, every teen character is played by a teen actor. Everybody's playing exactly their age. That is kind of surprising because there are a couple of people we'll talk about later who they mm -hmm. don't look like they're teenagers. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, Adam Baldwin in particular. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's just fascinating to see. Yeah, there's two things or three things I would really point out about this movie that make us special even before we get to the storyline is that A, all the teen actors are play, played by teen actors. And a lot of them are like first and second timers like Matt Dillon and Chris Makepeace and Adam Baldwin. These guys are kind of plucked out of nowhere. And the other thing is that, uh, as my wife always points out when we watch this movie, is that like none of the teens have like their hair all made up. Nobody has makeup on. Like it lo looks very realistic. It, they all look like real kids. It doesn't look like Hollywood kids at all. Is that something that you noticed as well when you're watching it? Uh, I didn't notice it, but now that now that you mention it, I, I definitely I, I agree with that. But it didn't. I guess yeah, because they were so natural while I was watching it, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really even think about it. But yeah, yeah, they, they were all. They definitely all looked very realistic. They looked like teenagers. Yeah, perhaps that's something you notice more on your 70th or 75th viewing than maybe your second. <laughs> <laughs> but as my wife, my wife, we watch this all the time, and my wife always will comment on Joan Cusack. Because, again, this is Joan Cusack's movie debut, and she's like 14 or 15. And she's kind of goofy looking. She's got the world's worst hair. It's frizzy all over the place. She's got braces. She's kind of chunky. And my wife always looks at her and says, that poor girl. <laughs> I can't imagine what it was like being Joan Cusack as a teenager. And you see it in full display in this movie. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that when I first saw her. When she was on camera, that oh my god, that's Joan Cusack. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, and that's the third thing I wanted to point out about this movie is that it's very much set in Chicago, based in Chicago, filmed in Chicago. Like the opening shot, you see Clifford riding his bike. It's uh, what is that Lakefront Drive? Are you familiar with Chicago geography? I uh, I think that is Lakefront Drive. I, I'm vaguely familiar with it. Okay, and yeah. I was assuming that's where I was assuming. Yeah, we're gonna get yelled at by someone from Chicago if we're not right. We're both West Coasters. Please forgive us if we're off on Chicago geography. But yeah, the movie's set in Chicago. All the I mean, it's it's so Chicago it hurts in a way. But what's funny is that they just took a bunch of local Chicago stage actors and threw them into the movie, and that's one thing that makes it really interesting. You got Joan Cusack whose, I think, father was a acting coach or grandfather, I forget. So Joan Cusack shows up in here. You got uh, Tim Kazarinski, who was later on Saturday Night Live and later in the Police Academy movies. He shows up as a union guy. You have George Went from Cheers, who's a Chicago guy, showing up here. It's just it's really funny to see all these just Chicago local actors showing up in bit parts in their first movies. 
Right. Yeah. George went just as kind of like a, almost like a cameo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then Jennifer Beals, you mentioned her earlier for a lot of people who don't know. She was the girl in Flashdance. And she shows up in this movie as just some local Chicago high school kid. She's not credited. She doesn't show up, but she's there. If you look for her, you can see her. She's sitting next to Joan Cusack in a lot of the scenes. Yeah, she's very recognizable. Okay, so yeah, so this is our cast. You have Chris Makepeace, again, my my favorite 70s teen star in there as the lead. And then you're going to have this bully in the class played by Matt Dillon. And I don't think I'm really mincing words here when I say Matt Dillon is an absolute bastard in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, he is. He is uh, totally. In the in the annals of teen bullies in movies, you aren't not, you're not going to get much better than Melvin Moody, played by Matt Dillon in this movie. And I was doing a little research on this. This was Matt Dillon's second movie, and this is something I always love pointing out to people: is that Matt Dillon was not a trained actor. He didn't go to any acting class. What's funny is that there was a movie in the late '70s. I think it was like a year before this, called Over the Edge. Have you ever heard of that one? It's very obscure. Nope. Okay. Over the Edge is one I want to talk about on Staff Picks in like a year or so. It's really obscure. It was just about these kids in a small town rebelling against the parents and all the authority figures and basically starting youth riots. And the star of that movie was a very young kid named Matt Dillon. It was his first role. He played a role very similar to this one where he's just this juvenile delinquent. And it's funny because he wasn't an actor. They just came to the school in Over the Edge and they were looking for local kids to play punks. And they see this kid... Matt Dillon, they're like, that kid looks like a juvenile delinquent. Let's put him in our movie. So he was in Over the Edge. He kind of stole that movie. Then he shows up here where he plays another juvenile delinquent. And he's just absolutely scary as hell to the point that when, like, little eight-year-old Mario watched this movie, and I see Matt Dillon, those are the kind of kids I'm going to see in high school in a couple years. Like, I was terrified. Yeah, I mean, he's really, like, he's like a greaser. He's a greaser with, I mean, with a really dark edge under him. Right. Although he doesn't ever really... Uh, I think do anything particularly violent in this movie. Mm-hmm. The threat is kind of always there, and he really brings that off. Yeah, he has his goons. He has this hit squad of goons that do his work for him. And he's like the king that lords over the school, Moody. And again, he's only a sophomore, so you got to imagine what kind of terror this kid's going to be when he's a senior. But yeah, he's again, this is this is the face of nightmares for little kids in the early '80s. Matt Dillon and my bodyguard. Yeah, I, and I could have sworn that I've seen him in other things because um, his name is so familiar and his, you know, his face is so familiar, but I went through his stuff in IMDb and I couldn't, I don't think I had seen anything else that he was in, but he seems like this kind of iconic 1980s uh, grease ball. Who just, he seemed like he was uh, around a lot. Yeah. He was in, in, in particular, the movie you're looking for is the outsiders from about 1983 came out about three years after this. That's what he would be best known for. I think. Maybe. I'll have to go look that yeah. up. I don't I don't remember. But Yeah, and guess what? He plays a little greaseball juvenile delinquent in that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> he was kind of typecast, yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's the storyline. So, yeah, so uh, Chris Makepeace, Clifford Peach, shows up at school for the first day, and uh, he's kind of got a weird family life at home. We'll get into this a little more later as it becomes part of the movie. His dad, Martin Mull, is the owner of, or the manager of a hotel. He lives there with his grandmother, played by Ruth Gordon. Now, I know you have something to say about Ruth Gordon. Are you a Ruth Gordon fan? I am. And I know that a lot of the criticism of this movie has been that there's too much Ruth Gordon in it. But I'm I'm a softie for Ruth Gordon. I, I just think she's so funny. And um, I, I mean, at this point in this movie, she was kind of playing Ruth Gordon. Yeah. But it kind of at least watching it this time didn't that didn't bother me. I was just 
delighted to see her again. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Ruth Gordon, very, very successful actress. I think what she was a playwright for many years. She's a writer. She's known for a lot of stuff, not just acting. The acting kind of came at the end of her career. But she was very, very famous. And then she won an Oscar for Rosemary's Baby in the 60s. And then she was in Harold and Maude in the 70s. And again, like you said, at this point, this is right at the end of her career. She's just playing Ruth Gordon in every role. She's playing basically Maude. And again, it's, yeah, I agree. It kind of, she, she doesn't really fit in with, with the rest of this movie, but any scene where you get to watch Ruth Gordon is kind of a delight if you appreciate her. And I, I, I enjoyed her stuff. Yeah. She's kind of playing a dirty old lady. Well, she also was in Harold and Maude. Yes. And she's kind of playing a dirty old lady in this movie. And, um, I just, I really enjoy the scenes that she's in. I mean, they're, yeah, they're funny and they, they probably are unnecessary, but uh, I think they, they, uh, they make the movie a little bit lighter than it would have been otherwise. And she does have one especially heartfelt scene that's very important to the storyline kind of later in the movie. We'll get to that. It's one that that a lot of people don't remember is in this movie. It's a very important scene. Okay, so yeah. here we go. So Clifford shows up at school. It's his first day. And again, he's just a good kid. He's not like the brightest kid in school. He's not the biggest kid in school. He's just an everyday average kid who shows up in class for the first day. And he shows up... Uh, Again, we're at public school, and the first day of class is just a mess. There's, like, kids throwing paper airplanes, people talking back to the teacher. you got kids, like, shoving each other out of the way so they can get in their seats. And this isn't the type of thing that Clifford's ready for. He's just showing up here at this new school, and he gets shoved over in the corner, kind of like an animal house where the, the loser kids get stuck in the loser frat. This is Clifford ends up in the loser corner over by this kid Carson, the new kids in the class, who really are, are not going to be the biggest names in this school, clearly. And uh, this is where uh, Clifford makes a series of mistakes right off the bat on the first day. Yeah, right. He he, he gets right into hot water. Okay, and again, this is, any, again, anybody who grew up who had to deal with bullies in school, you learn some self-defense tactics not to do in class to get people to draw attention to you. And Clifford being the new kid from the private school, perhaps not not well-versed in some of these things, that he makes three mistakes right off the bat, and that Moody, the bully, shows up in the class and Moody, well-known, everyone's like, oh, Moody, like they all know this kid. And Moody wants to sit in Clifford's seat. Clifford loudly protests, I was here first. And that's strike one, don't take the bully's seat. Right. And then, let's see, what's step two here? Is that, uh, step two is that uh, they call Clifford's name and role, and his name is Peach. Clifford, P-E-A-C-H-E, Peachy or Peach. Which, strike two is don't have a name that's easily made fun of by the other kids. <laughs> Right. And then step three is that uh, somebody makes a joke about uh, Melvin. His nickname is Big M. And uh, Clifford says that was that BM for short. And strike three is don't openly taunt the bully on the first day of class. So admittedly, we're kind of going into the Ralph Macchio school of the karate kid here of don't antagonize the bully on the first day. But Clifford didn't know that. And he's already made an enemy right off the bat. Right. Although my sense of him, uh, of Chris Makepeace's character, is kind of that he almost, he sort of almost doesn't care when he's wading in the hot water. Uh-huh. And it may partly be that it's because he doesn't have the experience. But there's also sort of a, a fearless kind of character uh, about him. Yeah, and that's true. That will come into play later where he, where he refuses to give in to Moody. Right. Yeah, so that's true. So he's, he's not just reckless. He's just kind of fearless. He's a brave kid, and he knows, you know, I can I can solve things. So he's going to wade right into this problem. And all of a sudden, you got Moody staring at him and says, you know, new kid, we're going to have a little talk after school. And the rest of the class is like, ooh. And again, this is, we're kind of joking about it. This is not played for laughs in the movie at all. Clifford is dead meat here. 
<laughs> right. And this is where we meet kind of the third member in this uh, triumvirate of big characters in this movie. We don't meet him, but we hear about him. In that you got Moody the bully, you got Clifford the uh, victim, and then there's this other character who they call his name in role. His name is Ricky Linderman. And it's he's the uh, very seldom seen but often feared Ricky Linderman that the minute the teacher calls his name, everyone in class just shuts up like, oh, crap, Linderman's in our class. And it's one of these things that, that Clifford just kind of perks up like, who's this Linderman kid? Why is everyone visibly scared of him? And it's like, this will become very important down the road. Yeah. And, and yeah, so Linderman, at first, he's just a, a sort of mysterious name. Now, did you ever go to school with a kid like that that just... He wasn't around much, but when he was, everyone knew who he was. He was, this is the biggest, toughest kid in the school, and everyone's kind of scared of him. Are, were you familiar? Was that, is that kind of universal in every school? Not in the schools that I went to. I don't remember. I don't remember. I mean, in the junior high school that I went to, I don't remember anybody like that. And um, in my high school, where I only had 17 people in my class. Yeah, the 17 kid Jewish private school did not have the large, scary Shecky yeah. Eisenberg that everyone was frightened of or something. Yeah, not not so much. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so these are going to be the three characters in the movie here. We got Clifford, we got Moody, and we got Linderman. And Linderman, again, there was a kid in my high school that the biggest, scariest kid around. And like you, this wasn't just bully level. This is like like mass murderer level. And again, I'm going through public schools and I didn't go to school in Chicago. I went in the Seattle suburbs, which are nowhere near Chicago, but I can imagine there were some pretty unsavory characters walking around Chicago public schools in the uh, early eighties. Oh, and that, yeah. that does remind me one thing here is that even though this gets marketed as an eighties movie, it really feels more like a seventies movie to me. Would you agree with that? In, in what sense? It doesn't like, you, you call this an 80s movie, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like Breakfast Club. It doesn't feel like Fast Times or 16 Candles. Like, it feels much grittier and more real. Like, I would say, if it, and again, it was filmed in 1979, so it makes sense. But I think it's a misnomer to call it an 80s movie. Yeah, it's very different from those movies, that John Hughes movies that came later. Okay, so here we go. So Clifford has go, goes out of his homeroom for the first day, and he's already made an enemy, which is the wrong enemy to have. And he's being warned. Clifford's got a little buddy named Carson who's like, you know, you, uh, you don't get caught in the halls walking alone. Don't get caught on the stairs. Don't get caught in the bathrooms. And again, perhaps your tiny private high school was not like this. But yeah, in my public school, this is the way this is, I think, is any public school in America. I'm imagining it's very similar even today that there are certain areas after school, you know, don't go by yourself. Right. And I have to say, I mean, Carson, to me, he uh, he also brings a little bit of a comic relief aspect to this. I mean, he, he's a little kid who is the reject that, you know, the opposite from a cool kid. And he clearly has experience with, with the bullies. Yeah. And yeah, and he's the one who's kind of, who's kind of uh, tutoring. I keep forgetting the name of the character. Cliff, Clifford. Clifford. Yeah. He, he's the one who's tutoring him. But I mean, he, he's also kind of a comic character himself. Yeah, and I will say when I watched this movie as a kid, he was always my favorite. Carson always makes me laugh. He's the the Greek chorus off to the side. He's doomsday. Everything's doom and gloom at all times. He's so horrified of everything. It's, yeah, he's right. he's great. He steals all these scenes, and it's one of these guys. I don't know if that kid ever starred in another movie, but he steals this whole movie. No, I thought yeah, I thought he was pretty funny. Okay, yeah. So, and this is where Carson lays down some exposition. He's like, uh, yeah, Moody kind of runs a uh, protection scheme at this high school where you got to pay him and his thugs protection money 
or they're going to beat you up. It's basically extortion. They take your milk money and you better pay up or they're going to hurt you. And again, this is not paid for laughs, played for laughs. This is dead serious, like Carson's telling him right now. You just pissed off the wrong guy, and you better start paying him money or your arm is going to get broken. You're going to get thrown out of a window. And Carson even explains, you know, last year a kid got thrown out of a window. Some other kid got his eye kicked out and it was dangling out of the socket. Like, this is a, a scary place, and you better you better grow, grow some eyes in the back of your head, kid. Although there's still a sense where Clifford is kind of like, it seems like he's exaggerating, mm-hmm. and Clifford kind of, I think, knows that he's exaggerating and doesn't totally taken seriously i mean clifford he kind of gets the warning he knows he's got to be smart here but yeah he clearly thinks this is a little exaggerated it can't be that bad right okay now we get clifford's first run-in with moody where uh clifford is uh he sees them waiting he sees the goons waiting for him in the halls and again i just can't reiterate enough how a big a part of my life was and i'm sure a lot of kids in high school over the years how much of your life is spent watching where the the tough bully kids are after school and not walking down that hallway? <laughs> and this is so universal to me. Like, I just remember this. So, yeah, so Clifford backtracks. He goes in the library. He kind of waits it out. And, again, it, it doesn't work for him because the goons catch him when he gets out. And they pull him into the bathroom. And this is the one place you don't want to be after school in the Chicago public schools, alone in the bathroom with Moody and his thugs. Right, yeah. There's no way to avoid it. You have to go to the bathroom sometime. All right, and so here we go where Moody basically uh, indoctrinates uh, Clifford into the ways of the school. He says, we're going to shake hands. We're going to be friends. Hey, I just want to make friends with a new kid. Can I be your friend? And then they ask him where he's from. Clifford says he's from some academy, and they're like, oh, you're a rich kid. And, oh, this is strike four right now. The minute they learn you're a rich kid, they're going to shake you down. Right. So, yeah, Moody, this is where Moody goes into his little spiel here. He says, you know, there's some scary people at the school. He goes, this Ricky Linderman kid, that's the kid. That kid... You know, he's a psychopath. He's what? He raped a teacher. He broke people's legs. He killed a kid, blew his brains out. He's like, there's these scary guys walking around this school, and you you need protection. You need to hire me and my friends. We'll be your bodyguards. Which, is, again, is just thinly veiled extortion, but it's very effective because, again, Linderman has this reputation that he's walking around killing people. So this is Moody is playing on the, uh, the premise here that the new kid will have no idea what he's talking about, that, of course, he hasn't been warned about this. Yeah, but didn't hadn't Carson uh, told him about the scary stuff about Linderman before this scene? Yeah, Car- Carson has filled Clifford in on all the gossip, and he will continue to the rest of the movie. Right, and and the stuff that he that he says about Linderman uh, again just seems so ridiculous that it just seems like Moody just writes it off. To get, I mean, uh, Clifford just writes it off. Like he doesn't he doesn't take it seriously. So anyway, what happens at the end in this scene here, this is a very famous scene in this movie where they try to shake down uh, Clifford for the uh, the lunch money like they do with everybody else. Clifford, like you, like Jay said, was very fearless. Clifford's not going to go for it. Clifford says, well, I need my money to drink. I get hungry and thirsty. And they said, okay, we'll drink this. They pull out a thing of piss from the bathroom. Clifford, in anger, flips up the cup of pee all over Moody, which again, strike five. He's had a rough day with pissing off the bullies. Now now he's thrown urine on them. Now they start chasing him through the halls. Clifford's about to get the beating of a lifetime. He runs through the halls. He gets down to uh, the, the, his dad's limo waiting outside, which again, you're getting picked up at school in a limo at public school. That's really not a good idea. But Clifford just barely escapes with his life, and they're taunting him, and he drives off. So Clifford's first day of school could not have gone any worse. Yeah, right. Okay, so we go back to the hotel. And again, this is, I always kind of like this was like this part of the movie, that Clifford lives in the hotel with his dad and his grandma. They, like, live up in the penthouse, which is kind of a cool way to live, I guess. It's great. I mean, they, they it, it looks like a great way to live. 
I mean, he has people when he comes in with his bike, he has somebody to take his bike. He's, they show him eating dinner in the kitchen of the hotel, but the chef is waiting on him and, uh, it, it seems like a pretty good life. Yeah, absolutely. Even though his grandmother is hot to trot and is flirting with every single businessman down in the lobby. But for the most part, the life is pretty good. He's a little lonely, but again, he's got his little good life here in the hotel. So basically his dad finds out what happened to Clifford at school that he got bullied. And the dad's like, well, you know, son, again, Martin Mull. We should talk about Martin Mull here. You are a big Martin Mull fan, I take it. Uh, I am. What 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 is he better known for, for people who may not know? What is what is Martin Mull's claim to fame, aside from being the dad and my bodyguard? I think his biggest claim to fame was in Fernwood Tonight. And that was a spinoff of um, that. There was a, uh, a blanking on the name of the show. It was a takeoff on on um, soap operas and that was uh, that aired in the 70s. Yeah. Um, Fernwood Tonight was a big comic show. It was Martin Mull and Fred Willard, right? Was that his co-host? Yeah. Yeah, and this right. was on Nick at Night a lot when I was a kid. It was a very famous 70s comic show. Martin Mull, a very well-respected comic actor over the years. You'll see him in a lot of other movies in the 80s showing up. He shows up in Mr. Mom, just one off the top of my head. But yeah, so he plays Clifford's dad here, and he's like, uh, well, you know, Clifford, I heard you got bullied, but I took care of it. I called the principal. And Clifford's like, oh, crap, <laughs> which is the worst thing for you to do is for the dad to call the principal. Exactly. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dad. Okay, so Clifford goes back to school the next day, and his dad has uh, spoken to the principal. So both Clifford and Moody get pulled into the principal's office. And again, I have to say, the principal is is legitimately trying. He's like, he's telling Moody, I know what you're trying to do, but since there was no damage done, I can't really suspend you. So you're just going to get a week's detention. And so, uh, and then the principal kind of pulls Cliff aside and says, you know, this is public school now. You can't be crying wolf anytime somebody looks at you. So try to grow a little thicker skin around here. And Clifford's like, I, I didn't want my dad to tell the principal. That wasn't my, yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so Moody's out there in the hall and this is where Moody gives Clifford the warning. He's like, uh, you know, you're causing me a lot of trouble and people don't cause me trouble around here. So you better grow some eyes in the back of your head because you won't know when it's coming. So there's the threat. And basically the next 20 minutes or so of the movie are just going to be Clifford just, just being terrorized by these kids. It's like, hasn't he done enough to antagonize Moody? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, at this point, yeah, now now he's got the principal has has his eye on Moody, so Clifford's really in trouble. So, yeah, so you're going to get him getting picked on in the locker room. He's going to get tripped. He's going to get shoved. He's going to get made fun of, just all sorts of stuff. But now we finally see Linderman. Now, this is where the movie starts to get interesting. And, again, I will say there's there's three really interesting moments in this movie, kind of plot twists, where the plot gets turned on his head. And this is where, would you say Linderman's entrance is where it starts to get a little interesting? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting already. But yeah, <laughs> it definitely, it, that has a layer of complication. So here you go. So Linderman, the next day, it's like the second day of school, maybe the third, I don't know. But Ricky Linderman finally shows up. And he is played by actor Alec, uh, Adam Baldwin. And Adam Baldwin, this was his absolute first movie. They kind of plucked him out of nowhere. Again, just a teenager. But the thing with Adam Baldwin is he's hulking. He looks like he's about 30 years old. He's a good, what, eight, nine inches taller than anybody else in the class. He just looks older. He looks like he has to shave. Like he smokes. Like he's just, and again, this is the thing with high school, why high school is so conducive to bullying, kind of being, you know, terrible to younger kids, is that there's such a discrepancy in size and ages among some of these kids in high school sometimes that you have a little 15-year-old who's just a little kid next to Linderman who looks like he's 30, and like it's like a man next to a boy. And that's the thing with Linderman. Everyone's just terrified of him because he's so big. Right. He definitely looks older. 
And I think I read he was only 18 or 19. He really is playing his age. Adam Baldwin was just a big guy. Yeah, and by the way, he's no relation to the fame of the other Baldwins. Yeah, I almost called him Alec there, so I had to catch myself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, Adam Baldwin, just one of these guys, just, just big, scary, hulking-looking dude, and you kind of have to see him to believe him, just how much bigger he is than everyone else. And combine this with this reputation that, you know, he's killed people, that he rapes teachers. Like, it's, he's, it's clear why everybody is terrified of this guy. Right. So here we go. So here comes the big bullying montage where Clifford's getting beat up in gym class. Let's see. Uh, they, uh, the, the bullies stuff uh, trash into his locker over his clothes. Just, Clifford's life is a living hell here. And he has no recourse. There's nothing he can do about it at this point. He's got to, as, 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 as it is in real life, a lot of times you just got to take the medicine if you're a kid in high school. As, as much as that sucks to say, you're at the mercy of these bullies. And then this is where... It gets interesting because one day the bullies have cornered Clifford, Clifford in the bathroom again, and he's screwed. He knows he's going to get pounded. And right before they come up and beat him up, who should step out of the stall next to him but Ricky Linderman, who's been in there smoking. And the minute Linderman stands up, Moody and all the bullies scatter. They run. They want nothing to do with this guy. And Clifford right. sees this. Yeah, and he's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, right. That You see the light bulb go off. Yeah, and this is the genius of this movie, why this movie is kind of special, is that Clifford's like, well, you know, I'm going to get bullied. I'm going to give away my milk money either way. At least I'd rather give it to someone of my own choice. So he's like, well, there's these bullies that are terrorizing everybody in the school. How about I go to the one guy that they're scared of and hire him to be my bodyguard? Right. And I think there's some place in here where uh, I think uh, Moody had said to him, if, if you want to survive around here, you need a bodyguard when he's shaking him down for protection. Yeah, so Clifford's just using Moody's exact logic. Yeah, there are scary people, and I do need a bodyguard, and I'm going to hire the biggest mofo out there, Ricky Linderman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So here's a great scene where um, where Clifford goes up to Linderman, and again, it's just hilarious watching little tiny Chris Makepeace and giant hulking Adam Baldwin walking down to the gym together. As, as uh, Clifford apparently is not scared of this guy. He's like, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting screwed either way. I might as well go for the scariest guy. He's like... I want to give you, I have an idea, you want to make some money, you know, there are all these kids here, they're getting terrorized by Moody, like, uh, blah, 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 could I pay you to be my bodyguard, I'll do your homework, I'm kind of smart, and Linderman just absolutely is surly, he's like, no, no, not interested, he just wants nothing to do with any of this crap, and so, for now, the idea is going to get put on hold, but it will come back later. It, it couldn't be that easy. Of course, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the next day, yeah, Clifford is just getting pummeled at school every day, he's getting tripped in the lunchroom. And then uh, it's just it's just getting worse and worse. And so Clifford, to his credit, is trying to find out about Ricky Linderman. And he's, he's asking around. He's like, why is everyone scared of this guy so much? So Clifford's like, like, I'm scared of him. You're scared of him. But I don't want to be scared of him. Why? And why? What did he do that was so horrible? And so he asks around and we get the uh, the grapevine. I'm sure even the, the tiny Jewish 17 student school had a grapevine, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, the grapevine, where everyone just repeats rumors. Everyone knows what's happened to everyone else, even though it's not always based in fact. So his little friend Carson explains to Clifford, well, I heard that uh, Linderman raped a teacher. I heard that he shot a cop. And then someone else says, uh, I happen to know what he did was he killed a kid. About a year ago, he cold blood, he shot him right in the face. And so these are all these stories going around about Linderman. And Clifford doesn't believe it. He's like, there's no way all those could be true. And again, we're just a lesson of the game of telephone in school here. Like, you can't believe everything out there. And they're like, look it up. It's in the papers. He killed a kid. Yeah, right. Okay, so finally, this is the breaking point here where uh, <laughs> this is the most famous scene in the movie is coming up here, the one that everyone remembers from the 80s, where finally uh, the, the last straw is broken where uh, 
Clifford gets stuffed into his locker one day after swim class, all the bullies. The word has gotten around that, that Clifford's not paying protection money. The bullies don't like it. So now they're really starting to physically assault him. They stuff him into a locker, which, again, as a kid, that was like the seventh layer of hell to me getting stuffed in a locker as a claustrophobic kid. I wanted nothing to do with going to high school because I thought this happened regularly. Did you ever get stuffed in a locker? Please say no. No, I can't do that. Okay. I have so, uh, well, I'm curious. You said that you, what what did they do to you? Because you said you were kind of like the sissy kid, the little, you didn't, you did things you excelled and it didn't go over well. What what exactly did the kids do to you? Well, there, there was kind of a contingent of, uh, or there were a couple of kids who were particularly rough and they waited for me after school and they beat me up. And that happened a couple of times. And I think I did make the mistake of going to the principal and reporting it. And which also didn't help the situation. Yeah, I'm, su- uh, and- I'm surprised you're still here today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> In fact, even the assistant principal was not really sympathetic to me, as I re- as I recall. Um, I just kind of had to, to suck it up. Yeah, the one thing I remember in, in sixth grade when I got to junior high, there was this one big kid named Rob, Rob something, I don't remember his last name. He was big, he had a shaved head, he looked like he came out of jail, he was in eighth grade and I was in sixth grade, and there's such a big size difference between sixth and eighth grade that everyone was terrified of this kid. And I remember one day we were in the same gym class, or like we were in the locker room at the same time our classes, and he just walked up to me and picked me up, like I'm changing, I'm standing there in my underwear, he just lifts me up under the armpits just to show that he can. And like, what am I going to do? Like, stop, put me down? No, you just sit there. Okay. So he just holds me up and then he puts me down. And again, that's the most effective way I found to deal with a bully is playing possum and doing nothing. And just until he gets bored and puts you down. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think the thing that I never really figured out when I was a kid was that showing that you, having a a reaction or like showing fear, that just, uh, that just made things worse. And that's the thing with bullies. Like you always think they have a, uh, something in their psyche that needs to be fixed, but sometimes they're just assholes. That's just the way some kids are, and you can't show fear. And again, I'm, I hope we have some teenagers, young, te- junior high, and teens listening to this podcast, and we can give you our life advice here. Don't show fear to the bullies. That's what they want. <laughs> exactly. All right. So staff picks, saving lives here. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So this is the last straw. Clifford gets stuffed into a locker. And he's trapped there, he's screaming, and then Linderman comes and lets him out. Because Linderman apparently has been watching all this, and he just can't take it anymore. He's like, who is this little pathetic little turd who won't fight back? Like, he just gets picked on. So Linderman finally kind of has sympathy for him. And this is where we get the big moment here, where uh, Linderman lets him out of the locker. And Clifford says, well, what are you looking at, you big dumb son of a bitch? And Linderman just kind of smiles, because it's the first time anybody's actually said anything to him that's even somewhat mean. I think he kind of is amused that someone's actually standing up to him. So... Here we go, the famous diner scene. Oh, yeah. Now, did you remember the scene? I know when you watched it, you hadn't seen this in 30-plus years. Did you remember this scene? No, I didn't. So it was it was fresh in your mind when you watched it. You got, you got the spontaneous reaction, the joy of Clifford finally standing up to Moody. Right. So this is the scene where... So Clifford and Linderman have apparently struck some sort of a bargain here that Linderman's now kind of representing. The, as, as you are an attorney, you understand the attorney-client privilege here that... Linderman has now been retained for his services. And uh, so Clifford says, okay, we're going to test this out real quick. We're going to see what happens when this bully meets Linderman. So all these kids after school are in this deli, this deli it looks apparently they all go to after school to get snacks and drinks and sandwiches and stuff. And Clifford just walks up and decides he's going to pull out the ketchup and mustard and spray it in the face of all the goons of Moody. Then he dumps a milkshake onto Moody's head and he just laughs and runs out, which... Again, he's going to get stabbed. He's about to get murdered in the parking lot. 
So all the bullies run out after Clifford, and Clifford runs into this abandoned lot across the street, and they kind of corner him, and they're like, you're dead, you idiot, why would you do this? And then all of a sudden, you hear this big voice, hey, Moody, and here comes Linderman, he walks out of nowhere, and he just goes up and stands behind Clifford, and Clifford's like, oh, Moody, did you have something to say to me? Because I'd like you to meet Ricky Linderman, he's my bodyguard. <laughs> and this is really one of my favorite, again, I, I hate to call this an 80s movie, but in... in 80s movies moments that's one of my all-time favorite scenes just i just imagine people cheering in the audience when this happened when linderman shows up and moody just gets that look on his face like oh crap and so this big scene where moody and his bullies are deciding if they want to take on linderman and no one's going to mess with this kid because they're scared of him and then it's this big moment where they finally back down and everyone cheers and all the kids are excited and then carson of course clifford's little buddy walks up and says hey moody you owe me two years worth of lunch money and then gives him the middle finger right to his face and again just it's a good applause in the theater moment. It's one of those things I wish I had seen in the theater. Yeah, it's a great scene. And and Joan Cusack is like all her reaction is really funny too. Like she's she's impressed. Yeah, she is. That's the thing. Cliff is now the cool kid on campus. He hired Linderman. He is now the big man on campus. And this is a big thing. And again, in theory, this should be the end of the movie. Like, we, he solved his problem. He's hired the bodyguard. He's given kids my age, going into high school in a couple of years, an idea. Wow, someday when I go into high school and I get bullied, I can just hire the bigger, scarier kid? How cool. <laughs> right. Yeah, but we're going to get some uh, plot twists in this movie. This It gets really complicated here. It's not, it's not as simple and feel-good as you think it's going to be. So after the bullying, after the, the big moment, the showdown with Moody... Clifford's walking away with Linderman. He's like, that was great. That was awesome. Now we got we got him right in the palm of our hands. We can do whatever we want. And Linderman, again, is not just a stereotypical movie character. He's like, are you done? Like, is the pony show over? Like, are, you, are we done showing me off and pretending that I'm your friend? And Clifford's like, well, I thought we were friends. And he's like, sorry, you thought wrong. So Linderman is very complicated here. He has done a nice favor for this kid, but he doesn't want to be friends. He's got some issues going on. And we're going we're gonna to catch the darkness in Ricky Linderman's soul real soon here. Right. Now, I'm curious, is this, how much of this movie did you remember? Did you remember this whole subplot coming up the next 30 minutes with Linderman's backstory? Uh, no, I, I really did not remember very much of the specifics of this movie at all. Yeah. Other than, I mean, I remembered him being his bodyguard and kind of being, coming to his rescue. But no, I didn't remember the, the details about his, about his life. Yeah. And see, that's one of the things, because I've seen this movie so many times that I'm kind of, like, I know all the beats coming before they hit. And I almost envy, like, you having not seen it in so long because you get to experience the beats in this movie that change the plot all of a sudden. Because I think they're really powerful. I really am impressed. So I'm kind of jealous in a way that you got to experience it in a way that I never will ever again. <laughs> well, just wait 30 years. Don't watch <laughs> Yeah, okay. In 30 years, that's right, we'll be coming back to watch this. So uh, so now Cliff is, con is very uh, confused about Linderman. Like, what's wrong with this kid? Why is he so messed up? So... He goes to his teacher. He's got a teacher, Mrs. Jump, I think her name is. And this is actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And again, I've seen this movie so many times. It's it, it still affects me, this one, where he asks her, like, what's wrong with Ricky? Like, what's the deal? And again, I appreciate this movie that the adults are portrayed as being very sympathetic. They want to explain. They want to help these kids. And she kind of sits down and she explains. She's like, I'll tell you. She's like, he's like, I, I'm, I'm afraid of Linderman, but I don't want to be. And she's like, well, what do you think about all those stories about him? And he's like, well... They can't all be true. And she's like, well, there's one story that I do know is true, and I'll tell you what I know. And this is where we start learning what's happened to Ricky over the years. And again, this movie really is the Ricky Linderman story. You think it's the Clifford Peach story, but it's not. It's really about Linderman, and we're going to start figuring out why right now. 
the teacher says, well, you, you know, a year ago, he had a younger brother, and the younger brother was playing with a gun, and he accidentally shot himself, and he killed himself, and Ricky was the one when he came home, he's the one that discovered his dead brother's body, and she's like, and I don't think he's ever recuperated for that, from that, and I think that's what's happened to him, and that's all I know. That's the only thing I know that's true about him, that he's having a hard time dealing with his dead brother. Right, which is actually what, that's what everyone thought. That that was that was true as far as what she, as far as what everyone knew. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've all exaggerated and say, well, Ricky killed him, Ricky's killed kids. Everyone knows that there was a dead brother, but they don't really have all the pieces. And again, it's just like the game of telephone, how it works in school that, well, Ricky must have killed this kid. And so Clifford's like, oh my God, this kid had... He discovered his brother's body, like this little nine-year-old kid. Like, how, what kind of torture must this guy be living through that he was the one who discovered the body? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Clifford's going to make a, uh, a concerted effort here. Now he's really trying to be friends with Linderman. Like, he starts sitting next to him in the cafeteria. Linderman wants nothing to do with him. He, he, Linderman is just not ready to interact with other kids anymore. He's way too wounded. He's way too hurt. And he keeps telling uh, Clifford, you know, the show's over. Get lost. Like, I'm not here to put on a show for you, which is like... If you start watching this movie from Linderman's point of view, you kind of get it. Like, like stop holding me up as this mascot. I'm just some kid. I don't want to be anybody's hero or anything. Yeah, I just, I just happen to be bigger than everybody else. Exactly. Although there's one little funny moment here that I have to point out. I don't know if you caught this, where <laughs> Clifford is just trying his best to get Linderman to like him, to, to entertain him, to do anything. And at one point, he sees Linderman smoking in the hall, and Clifford makes a little joke. He's like, you got you to be careful. Those things will stunt your growth. And it's just this is deadpan silent when Linderman looks at him. And what's the cutest thing is that, you know, Clifford laughs at his own joke. He does this little Steve Martin move where he moves his fingers and starts dancing around like one of the wild and crazy guys from Saturday Night Live, which I think is so cute because that's exactly what a kid in 1980 would have done after a joke is do his little Steve Martin impression. It's just one of these little time capsule moments. Did you catch that in the movie? I did. I actually wrote that down on my nose. And I was hoping that I was going to be the one that was going to mention that. Oh, sorry, I stole your thunder. Yeah. You should have paid me protection money, Jay. Yeah, right, exactly. But, uh, no, I did. I wrote, actually wrote down. He does a little Steve Martin movie. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Just a little time capsule moment where that's what a kid in 1980 would have done after a joke that he thought was especially funny, his little Steve Martin punchline. Okay, so Clifford is absolutely fascinated by how I'm going to get Linderman to like me. I want to learn more about this kid. I want to be his friend. Because, again, Clifford doesn't have a huge plethora of friends. It's not like he's got friends dropping out of the sky. Like, I could use a friend, too. So there's a long scene here where he follows Linderman home, and Linderman walks home, and Linderman lives in, like, the seediest area of urban, gritty Chicago. Like, when you're watching this, are you just horrified that a kid would live in this area? Yeah, it just, they're like, I, I couldn't believe that there was a, this whole area that was such a bad neighborhood that was right just within walking distance of the school. I mean, not, I don't even say it's walking distance to the school. Linderman probably walks about an hour and a half or so. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so Linderman's just got a terrible life. I mean, he comes from a broken family. His brother's dead. He lives out in the ghetto. Like, he's just taller than everyone else. He's scary. No one likes him. He just, And you can just see Clifford just getting more sympathetic as he walks further and further into the ghetto to Linderman's house. And this is where, after a, good, a little chase scene, Linderman kind of grabs him and is like, why are you following me? What's your point? What's your problem, kid? And and Clifford's like, well, I just thought we could be friends. Well, we can't. And then this is where Clifford pushes him a little. He's like, I know what happened to your brother. It could have happened to anyone. And Baldwin just snaps. I mean, Ricky Linderman, like, drop it. And so this is the one thing, like, like Clifford's really pushing the line here, kind of pushing Linderman about his brother. And uh, and this is where 
uh, Clifford just basically pleads helplessness at this point. He's like, I know you don't want to be friends, but I'm trapped here in the middle of the ghetto. I don't know how to get home. How do I get out of here? And so Linderman's like, fine, come with me. And he's like begrudgingly. And so this is where we go to the motorbike scene. Now, you have to have remembered the motorbike. This is one of the most iconic parts of this movie. Did you remember the motorbike from your first viewing? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, good. Yo, Al, this, <laughs> it was like watching it all new for you. I'm excited for you. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Okay, so Linderman takes... Uh, Clifford to his garage. He uh, apparently the one hobby that Ricky has is he's restoring this old motorbike, and it's kind of heartbreaking because when uh, Linderman explains it, I've been working on this for a year. I kind of been building it out of parts. I found it in junkyards and stuff. And if you kind of do the math in your head, you realize he's been doing this about since the time his brother died, and this is like his way of coping with the world. He's got this little motorcycle. It's the most important thing in the world. So it's like kind of heartbreaking the more you think about that. Yeah, that's true. That hadn't occurred to me. So uh. So he's showing Clifford this bike, and he's all proud of it, and he's like, well, it doesn't work. There's this one part I've been looking for for, like, months, and I can't find it. They don't make the cylinder anymore. So this becomes the one thing that Clifford and uh, Linderman are going to bond over, this bike. And so there's this big montage scene of them going to different junkyards and looking for parts and looking for the cylinder. And this is one also one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I just kind of wrote down here, this was a neat scene, where... They're just kind of bonding. It's about 15 minutes of them just talking and bonding about their lives. And Clifford explains how his mom died in a car crash, so he doesn't really have a stable nuclear family. And then Ricky, of course, his family is devastated since the brother died. So they they kind of have some things in common here. And it, is that that's one thing that stood out to me here that they actually have some things in common despite their obvious differences. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, as the scene is going on, Linderman is kind of. Um, the ice is breaking more and more. Yeah, you can just see Linderman kind of thawing. He is not, he has not clearly talked to anybody about his dead brother ever. He hasn't had a friend in who knows long how long. You can just kind of see him warming to Clifford because Clifford's kind of broken too. And they again, they're just it's just neat seeing two people coming together and forming a friendship that are both damaged. And then we get this neat moment where where Clifford actually finds the cylinder that will complete the motorcycle. And there's this really happy moment where Linderman goes, yes, and he holds it up. And it's like the first smile he's probably done in a year. And we get this really cool montage of the two of them, two of them riding around the city of Chicago on the new motorcycle. And again, this is one of the more iconic scenes. I remember my bodyguard was always shown on HBO and, and cable TV back in the 80s and stuff. And this was the scene they would always show. They always show them riding with, with uh, Clifford Peach's hands up in the air in triumph. So this is a really neat moment. Yeah, and then, Even though it's got some weird, goofy 70s music in the background to it. Yeah, the, the the music in this movie, the the soundtrack is is a little odd. <laughs> I hate to use the word dated. I always say that that dated just means well, this movie wasn't made for you. Well, of course it wasn't made for you. It was made for a '70s audience. But yeah, even by '70s standards, kind of the 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 music in this scene is a little weird. Yeah, it was the, the music was a little bit distracting at, at certain times in this movie. Okay, and here's the scene I was talking about earlier where. Ricky and uh, Clifford are like friends now. They bonded over the motorbike. They've apparently talked about the brother. You know, Ricky's starting to make peace with all this. And and this is a really sweet scene where Ricky gets dressed up. <laughs> I don't know where he had the nice clothes, but they dress him up and they bring him over to Clifford's hotel so they could have dinner. And there's a really sweet scene here. And again, even if you've seen this movie 70 plus times like I have, this is one that always kind of sticks with me with uh, Grandma, with Ruth Gordon when they're talking. You know which one I'm talking about? With uh, where she reads his poem. Oh yeah, I yeah, and I didn't take notes about this scene. I no, I yeah, and I forgot about this scene. Okay, yeah, there's a scene where they're at dinner, and Ruth Gordon's doing her little uh, Ruth Gordon shtick. She's 
I can't impersonate her. She's so distinct the way she talks. But she's doing her little flirty, flighty old lady. And then at one point she decides she's going to do read Ricky's palm, Ricky Linderman's palm. And she pulls it down and she starts telling him about his lifeline and about his love line. Oh, you must be an intellectual. And he's like, oh, I think that maybe is in the future, man, which is kind of funny. And then she sees, she starts pulling his uh, his sleeve out of his, uh, his, his wrist out of his sleeve. And, and Clifford notices that there's scars all on Ricky's wrist. Right. And Clifford's like, what's that? And he quickly pulls his... And the implication, they don't really spell it out in the movie, the implication is that Ricky has tried to kill himself multiple times. And and the grandma, Ruth Gordon, catches this. She sees it. Right. She's like, uh, don't worry, just relax. She's like, you're among friends. And she really gets it. That's the one time that she stops being goofy grandma and she becomes like Maud from Harold Maud, where she's all wise and all seeing. And she's like, Ricky, you're among friends. Just let go. We're here to support you. And then she says... I see your lifeline, and this is the this is the line that almost makes me tear up when I hear it. She says, "You're going to live a long time, Ricky. You are very good. You are very valuable." And it's like she sees right off the bat this kid's hurt and troubled, and she says, "You have value. We appreciate you here." And it's really a nice little moment here. Yeah, it, it's a very it's a very tender scene. Okay, so here we go. Now, now we're going to get the, the second plot twist. The first one is, of course, Clifford hiring Linderman as his bodyguard, and now we're going to go for the second plot twist, which is where. Okay, so everything's good, and everything's, and the, the good guys have won. They've stood up against Moody, and they're all having lunch in the park. And now Moody, the, bo- the bully, shows up, and he comes over to Ricky and uh, Clifford as they're eating one day at the, at the cafeteria. And he's like, oh, hey, guys, I just want you to let you know I have a friend I'd like you to meet. Come on over. And so Moody calls over this guy, Mike. And Mike comes over. He's got the shaved head. He looks like he's fresh out of jail. He's got tattoos and stuff, I think. And Moody's like, this is Mike. He's my bodyguard. And you can see the look in in Clifford's face, like, oh crap. <laughs> now this guy Mike does is he also was he actually a teenager? I don't think he is. I think Moody went out and hired some guy in a motorcycle gang or something. There, there's no implication he's a student. He's just some guy that Moody hired to beat the crap out of Linderman. Yeah. And so this is a really tense scene, and I just wrote and circled in this like this is a tough scene to watch as a kid. I hated watching this scene. This is very painful to watch. This whole scene where. Moody and Mike start picking on Linderman, and they start taunting him, like, oh, I heard you killed your brother. You got away with it, too. And so they're going on and on the brother thing, and Linderman just sits there. Linderman is not used to people standing up to him, and they're taunting him and picking on him. And then Mike is like, you're going to hit me? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to, are you so tough? You're going to fight me? And so they, yeah, so they just, they're just picking on Linderman, trying to get a fight out of him. And Linderman is terrified. You can kind of see it in his eyes. He's never had to fight anybody before. And so Linderman's first instinct is to leave. He gets on his motorcycle to ride off to go home because he's not a fighter. And this is where they just are absolute bastards to him. And this is, again, as a kid, this scene would almost make me cry. And I, to this day, I even hate watching the scene where Mike punches Linderman, knocks him over, and then they take his bike and start just punching the crap out of it and breaking it. And then Moody thinks, well, we'll do something even worse. We'll take this bike this kid has spent the last year of his life restoring in honor of his dead brother, and we'll dump it into the water. So they take his motorcycle, they smash it, they dump it into the water, and at the end of the scene, Linderman has been absolutely humiliated and embarrassed and hurt in front of everybody, and he just runs off. He just could not handle this. Yeah, it's so sad. It is very sad watching this scene, especially you just you just want to to tell Linderman to just fight back. And that's the story of the movie. Fight. You have to fight back at a certain point, because even if you're the bodyguard, they'll just find someone bigger and stronger and meaner, and he'll come bully you now. Right. Yeah, it's just a horrible scene, and like... Even Clifford's like, what was wrong? Why didn't you fight back? And Linderman just looks at him and like, Linderman clearly has never fought in his life. He's not a fighter. He's just a big kid. 
so he runs off and yeah so uh we, that's kind of the end of Linderman. We're, we're not sure what's going to happen here. And then uh, Clifford is worried about him. Clifford goes looking for him. He's like, where did Ricky go? Goes to his house. The mom's all worried. She's like, I haven't seen him. He's, he should have been home. We're worried. Where'd he go? And like, so it's very scary here. Like, what, what did Linderman, where did he go after he was just publicly humiliated? And what happens is we find out that uh, he shows up at Clifford's uh, apartment later that night begging for money, looking forward. He's going to run away. He just... He's like, I didn't ask to be a bodyguard. I don't want to be a hero. I just want to be a kid. Like, why do I have to be, why do I have to be your bodyguard? Now, I never said I could fight. And now look what happened. I lost my motorcycle. I got embarrassed and he just is horrified. So, so Linderman's going to run away and Clifford basically won't let him go. Clifford chases him. And this is where we get the other plot twist in the movie. And I always, there's like four in this movie where you don't see him coming and they catch you off guard. Something that you thought was true was not true. Where, and this is one I really hope you didn't remember because I want, I hope you were caught off guard by this. The revelation of what happened to Ricky's brother? Yeah, no, I didn't remember. Yeah, so here we go. So so Clifford kind of finally corners Linderman. He's like, look, it's not your fault that your brother died. That could have happened to anybody. That wasn't your fault. And Linderman finally reveals what happened. He's like, I didn't find him. I killed him. I shot him. And, and uh, Clifford's like, Jesus. And yeah. so, yeah, so this is where, again, very, very powerful scene here and hard to watch. And again, it's... A testament to Adam Baldwin. This was his first movie that he delivers this monologue that basically his brother was playing with a gun one day or that he and his brother were home one day and they were playing with a gun and uh, there was a little scuffle. The brother wanted to play with it and Linderman wouldn't let him. So the kid tried to grab it and, and Linderman accidentally shot his brother in the head and killed him. And he's like, like the guilt he must live with over that. And he's basically, he lied about it. He put the gun in the brother's hand, said he found him, but I killed my brother. I'm responsible and I have to live with that every day of my life. And it's, man, it's such a gut punch of a scene. Yeah, Adam Baldwin, this was really his scene. This, this was a great scene. He was, he was so good in it. And these are the types of scenes that it really kind of hurts me when movies like this get forgotten and, like, nobody knows about it anymore. Like, there's a movie with this scene in it right here, in this monologue. And it's just, I just wish everyone could see this movie for this specific scene right here. It's so powerful. And just the look of Clifford's eyes, like, oh, my God, what this kid's been through. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, the... Uh, Chris Nakes, his, his eyes, they're just so soulful when he's looking back at him in the scene. And uh, Linderman ends the scene with, look, I'm sorry, Clifford, I know you mean well. I let everyone down. It's the way I am. Go home. And so, oh, my God. So <laughs> you think, what's, is Linderman going to go kill himself now? Like, this kid is the most troubled teen in a movie ever, and he's just been embarrassed and humiliated. And you think, basically, that's going to be the end of the story. But we are going to have a happy ending here, luckily, because this movie is kind of taking you through the ringer on some of these revelations. And here we go. The final scene. This is one everyone tends to remember. It's a little comic-y for my, for my uh, tastes. What do you think about the ending here with the double fight? Um, yeah, it's, I, I, I think the movie kind of had to end this way, but I, I don't remember the part that you're thinking of as comic-y. Okay. It didn't strike me that, it didn't strike me that way. Okay, let's go into it. Let's see what I can, how I can explain it. So anyway, we go back to school the next, or maybe it's like a week, two later, and they're, all the kids are bummed, and Carson, the little doomsday sayer, is saying, you know, it's worse than ever, like, they've taken all my lunch money, they're shoving me down, they called my mother names I've never even heard of before, <laughs> which is a great line, and then this is where Joan Cusack kind of gets her one speaking role in the movie, she's like, well, Linderman will be back, don't worry, just trust me, everyone says, Shelly, you're always right, and again, my wife is thinking, that poor girl, <laughs> she had to go through adolescence on film. <laughs> yeah, so there they go. They go. They're they're walking around school one day, and they see Linderman, and he's fishing his uh his bike out of the pond where the bullies have pushed it in before. So Linderman has come back, 
and I guess he's made peace. He didn't kill himself. He didn't run away. He came back to get his bike, and and they all run over, and they help him. They're like, hey, Ricky, hey, it's great to see you again, blah, blah, blah. And now, now stuff's going to get real because there's Moody in the park, and he sees Linderman pulling his bike out, and Moody runs over because Moody's not scared of Linderman anymore. He knows Linderman's all bark, no bite. And he runs over, and he blocks his path, and he's like, oh, where'd you find my bike? Thanks for pulling it out. And so Linderman just stares him down, and Moody stares him down, and Moody gets this little grin on his face, and he's like, oh, Mike, and he calls over his bodyguard to come beat the crap out of Linderman again, and there's a great scene here of Chris Makepeace saying, Moody, you're a real bastard. You know that, don't you? <laughs> and so here we go to the final scene where uh, where Mike comes over, the big bully who, who you know, terrorized Linderman last time, and he's like, you picking on Moody again? Do I have to teach you a lesson this time? And so Linderman just does his little contrite, okay, well, just take the bike, I'll leave again, act like last time. And this time, much to, again, I'm sure the audience who saw this in the theater started cheering, Linderman just reaches up and pops Mike, punches him right in the face and leaps onto him. And it's funny because I remember watching this movie at home in the 80s with my mom. My mom, very strong Lutheran woman, very ethical and a nonviolent woman. I remember her watching this movie just saying, punch him, hit him. So <laughs> I just always remember my mom getting roped into this movie. Just hit him, hit Mike. And so there's, it must have been a huge moment in the theater. And there's this big fight where, where uh, Linderman finally starts fighting Mike. And he doesn't really know how to fight, but eventually he just gets so enraged that they're taking his bike and they're picking on it and making fun of his dead brother that Linderman just out of pure rage starts punching Mike and basically beats the crap out of him. And basically he takes care of Mike, knocks him out and Linderman finally wins his big fight. Yeah. doesn't uh, Chris make these uh, Clifford kind of hold uh, Moody back because Moody is trying to sort of like help Mike fight Linderman. Yeah. And, uh, and Clifford is keeping, is kind of pulling him away. So Clifford is already starting to get into the action. Yeah, and this is the scene that I think is maybe a little over the top and comical for this movie, but it's, yeah, where it's, and it's something I, I forgot to mention is that, you know, Linderman's losing the fight at first, and this is, I think, it's something I don't think a lot of people would catch. 70 viewings will can make you catch this, where Linderman gets shoved back into a tree, and he reaches up and he has blood coming out of his head, and that's very similar to the story of his dead brother having blood coming out of his head after he was shot, and that's what kind of enrages him when he sees the blood coming out of the head. So anyway, Moody Moody is cheating. Moody's trying to help Mike. Clifford kind of has to pull him away. And so as as Clifford, as a Linderman beats up Mike, now all of a sudden you have Clifford fighting Moody, where you have little Chris Makepeace against Matt Dillon, which in real life, that probably would not be a very close fight. And it's kind of played kind of comically where, where uh, uh, Clifford starts getting fighting lessons from Linderman and how he's going to stand up to Moody. So it's a very satisfying fight where uh, Clifford's going to fight Moody here for all the marbles and to basically avenge his honor and get the bullies to leave him alone. But I do think this is a kind of a silly scene here. It is kind of silly, but I think one of the things that, that it shows is that I think Moody all along was more bluster than, uh, than he was letting on mm -hmm. that. A lot, I think sometimes these bullies, they, they act really tough, but they push comes to shove. They're not necessarily as tough as they make themselves out to be. And that, as you pointed out very correctly, Moody never actually hurts anybody in the movie. He's always talking about it, but he never does anything. Right. And, you know, when the scene when he's throwing the toilet paper balls at, at uh, Clifford, he never hits him. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that's the thing with bullies. Again, they are generally their bark is worse than their bite. And, and you know, Moody is here fighting Clifford for the first time where Moody actually has to do something physical. And Linderman just says, punch him in the nose. Let's see what happens when he gets his nose broken. <laughs> So Clifford pops Moody right in the nose, and really that's kind of the end of the fight. 
because Moody's never been hit before. He's never been hurt before. He just is sitting there shocked. He's like, you broke my nose. Like, he, he's unfathomable that that could happen to him. I'm Melvin Moody. People don't hit me. Right. Yeah, so again, it's a very satisfying ending. And I've, I was reading a bunch of YouTube comments on this scene, this double fight at the end. And some people love it. They're like, it's so satisfying to see the bullies get taken down at the end. And some people saying, well, I mean, they just resorted to violence in the end. So like, I don't Weren't there better ways to end this movie? But that's kind of the reality of bullies sometimes. Like, and that's, you don't hear this talked often enough in kind of in recent years that for years, that was always the thing they'd teach boys about in school. Like sometimes you just have to hit them back. The first time you do it, they'll stop picking on you. So that's kind of a, it's not really a lesson that's taught as much anymore, but you see it in this movie. Like sometimes that's the only recourse available to you. You just pop him once or do something right back to him and maybe they'll leave you alone. And that's basically how the movie ends that they've stood up to the bullies. Linderman won his fight. Clifford won his fight. They both got their self-respect back. We are to presume that the good guys are going to be left untouched for the rest of the movie, that they're going to be friends. They're going to grow. And then there's a cute little moment at the end of the movie where they're walking off and Linderman Linderman says Clifford, hey, you know, you're a pretty good fighter. Like, would you like to be my bodyguard? He's like, I could pay you a buck a day, pay you my lunch money. And he basically is repeating Clifford's speech from earlier in the movie. He's like, I could even do your homework. I'm pretty smart. And then Chris Makepeace is like, not interested, just like Adam Baldwin did. And it's kind of a cute ending to a movie. And it's really at that point we wrap up one of the most powerful teen movies and really one of the deeper explorations of friendship and uh, myth, legend, bullying that I can think of of any movie in the 80s. I mean, are there any movies you can think of that are kind of a comp to this? I was thinking about this all day and thinking, I can't really think of a movie like The Karate Kid in a way is kind of the same movie, but it's it's a little more over the top and cartoony. Like this is very gritty and real. Like you could see this movie happening. Can you think of any other comps? I, I can. And I generally didn't see a lot of teen movies. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few that I saw. I never saw Karate Kid, and I didn't see most of the John Hughes movies that came later. Um, so, I mean, we we've mentioned uh, Breaking Away, which mm-hmm. is also kind of, uh, and I, I I remember really liking that, and I I know that movie is still talked about um, and is still well respected. That's the only one that I can really think of that I would compare this to. Well, okay, I have an interesting question for you, because you clearly haven't seen this movie as many times as I have. And I knew going into staff picks, there's some movies I'm not going to find people who have seen My Bodyguard 70 times. I know I'm alone in that in my obsession over movies. So, But you specifically mentioned this movie as one you wanted to talk about, even though you didn't know it that well. What called to you about this movie that you thought you'd want to do a podcast about it? What spoke to you about it? I just know that over the years, I just remember having a really... Um positive reaction to the movie and really liking it. And, and it's kind of like back in, in the haze of my youth. So I can't really even remember exactly what at the time, why I loved it so much, but it, it just, it, it, I think part of it for me probably was the Ruth Gordon and the Martin Mull part. And just the whole thing just seems so well done. And, it was just a really well done movie to me in, in my in my head. Yeah, I was I was reading the uh, Roger Ebert review of this movie from 1980, and he makes two points that are interesting. He says, well, it's interesting. He like the whole concept of kids hiring bodyguards in school, which apparently was a real thing in 1978, 79, 1980. That was kind of a thing is that high schools were considered so dangerous at the time that it was often said that you might have you'd have to hire a bodyguard for school. And that's how this movie got written is someone just took that plot and said, 
well, I'll just hire my bodyguard, and then the bully will hire a bodyguard too. And Ebert said, and that's the problem with escalation of wars. Like, you just get someone who's bigger and stronger to be your ally, and then they'll get someone bigger and stronger and just escalate. So he kind of saw it as almost like a parallel to, to almost like world wars and stuff, which is kind of funny. Yeah. But then, again, I just wanted to point out that people think, you know, high school is terrible now in the 2000s, 2010s, like all these bullying in high school. Well, this movie was made at a point when it was considered normal to have to hire a bully in high school. So I don't know if schools have changed all that much. No. And, and you know, I don't know that the movie, I don't really know that it has a great message or moral, but it, it is a satisfying movie. It's just it, the, the characters are all very real. And uh, it does really show kind of uh, a kind of thing that a kind of rite of passage that all kids kind of go through at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I think that it does probably would resonate with just about any anybody. I agree with that. It's it's again a movie from the late 70s. So it's obviously set in a certain time period, place, blah, blah, blah. But it really is an exploration of friendship. And just how myths and legends get started in places like schools. Again, this myth of Linderman, all the stuff he supposedly did. And meanwhile, the only thing that happened is this horrible tragedy that he's been reliving in his head, yet it's been built up by everyone else. And again, this is kind of a universal thing that that that's the thing that these big, scary guys in school, in life, mostly in school, it's more of a teen thing, but like they may be dealing with demons that you don't even know about. So that's the thing that's kind of universal about this movie is that don't presume you know everyone's story without talking to them. They may be dealing with issues you've never even heard of before. Yeah, and I think that's uh, somewhat true of both Linderman and Moody because because Moody turns out to be kind of a paper tiger. Mm-hmm. You know, so don't don't just believe everyone's facades. Yeah. Now, as an attorney, would anybody be liable for personal injury here at the end of this movie? I'm just curious. <laughs> well, yeah, probably, <laughs> but when you're in high school, that... <laughs> Just check it. I wasn't sure what the legal ramifications are of the double fight scene here at the end. Yeah, I mean, if if Moody's father was a lawyer, then I think it's theoretically that. <laughs> yeah. My guess is if Moody's father was a lawyer, Moody would not have turned out the way he did. Yeah. He was the way he was. Maybe he could get away with it because his father was going to keep him out of trouble. But... That's true. See, that's more of a karate kid storyline where the bullies are rich. In this one, the bullies are still poor, just poor street kids. Right. Now, the other thing I wanted to bring up that Roger Ebert pointed out, and we we glossed over it in this, is that there's a whole subplot in this movie with Ruth Gordon hitting on uh, guests in the hotel, and they're going to get kicked out because she's always flirty and being inappropriate. And basically, then John Houseman, like the, the the founder of the chain of hotels, comes, and he falls in love with her. Again, it's it's kind of a very silly subplot. And as Jay pointed out, it it diffuses a lot of the tension in the movie. It kind of keeps it from being way too serious and morose. But as Roger Ebert in his 1980 review pointed out, it really doesn't belong in this movie. Like, it's like a sitcom that's in a serious movie. I'm just curious, since you said you mostly remember Martin Mull and Ruth Gordon, would you agree with that, that their subplot is, is cute, but it doesn't really fit in with the rest of the movie? Yeah, I I would agree with that. But at the same time, I just think the movie would lose so much if it didn't have that subplot. Um, I don't know what they would do. They'd have to do something to sort of um, create some comic relief that's going on in the background. So I don't, and I think that that, that subplot did that, did that. Um, it got a little bit too cute with, with the John Housen thing, mm-hmm. but, um, but they, 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 it, it needs some comic relief. And at the same time, if you're a fan of uh, cinema or history of movies or comedy at all, 
I mean, how cool is that there was a scene where Martin, where uh, John Houseman and Ruth Gordon got to flirt on in a movie, which is kind of cool just from a historical perspective. Right. And I had forgotten that John Houseman was in this movie. I'm like, oh, my God, that's the guy from the paper chase. Yeah. And he's like a legendary for people who don't know him, who only know him through like he was the grandfather on Silver Spoons. Like John Houseman, one of the most respected acting coaches ever in the history of movies. And then Ruth Gordon was like this really respected playwright writer actress way before she was harold maude like so it's really kind of historic seeing the two of them in this movie so again even if this maybe it doesn't really fit the rest of the movie it's just from a historic perspective i think it's really cool that they were in a scene together and then as jay said earlier just the more movies that had ruth gordon in them the better because she was always awesome yeah definitely uh, i think that she would wear out or welcome after a while but she wasn't i don't think she was in enough things where that ever happened yeah, maybe they should have had a movie where she had to hire a bodyguard against some some lady in the nursing home that was picking on her. Yeah, that might have been that might have been a bridge too far. <laughs> okay, well, in summary, my bodyguard, one of those movies that is so special in my life. I saw it so many times growing up. It's just it basically again for a kid who was terrified growing up of going into school, and I was a meek little kid. I didn't say much. Prime target for bullies because I wouldn't fight back. But like you see a movie like this as a kid, and you get ideas like. Maybe there are bigger kids out there that'll help you. Like the, there's there's ways around the perils of bullying in high school and stuff. And it's just for a whole generation of kids, this was a very special movie to them. And I just think it's it's kind of heartbreaking. It's been so forgotten. And again, it's not funny. It's not sexy. It's not crazy over the top. It's just like a lot of these stars, like Adam Baldwin, Matt Dillon aren't the biggest movie stars ever. Chris Makepeace dropped out of nowhere. Joan Cusack probably doesn't even want to talk about this movie. <laughs> But, like, it, it was such a big deal for the time, and it was on cable all the time. And it was just one of these omnipresent movies of the early to mid-80s that just kind of slowly was forgotten about by sexier teen movies. So it's just one I really would like more people to see, to know about, to explore, to discover. And even, like I said, I'm jealous of Jay. He's only seen this movie twice. So he got to experience some of the emotional beats and the plot twists that I can see coming a mile away because I've seen this movie so many times. But it really is a powerful movie, and I just uh, I'm so happy that we've gotten to do a show about it. Yeah, yeah, it it, it deserves to be seen by more people. So are you going to see it again at some point in the future? Or are you going to wait another thirty years and then be surprised? I'll probably wait another thirty years. I've got <laughs> the other things on my on my docket to watch. <laughs> Your life is so much different than mine, Jay. <laughs> I, yeah. i'll be watching this again in a week as always <laughs> okay well again i want to thank you for joining me is there anything else you would like to uh add here about my bodyguard before we sign off and uh say goodbye to whitney houston and kevin costner and company <laughs> uh no i can't think of anything else all right as always again this is staff picks uh my name is mario lanza and if you uh, have any feedback you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com you can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza, and I have a patron page on patron.com slash Mario Lanza, and I'd really appreciate it if you'd come and join and be my patron. I got a lot of cool benefits and perks coming up on future shows in here, so if you want to be my patron, that's the way to do it. And otherwise, until next time, just remember, if you're getting picked on in school, hire a bodyguard. I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you. Goodbye. Moody, you're a real bastard.